listener production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Monday, March 15. I'm Tom Tilley. And today we're going to brief you on how the sex industry could be affected by the federal government's online bullying laws. The bill itself doesn't really make any distinction about the difference between harmful content and uh, sexual content. More on that sexual content in just a moment. Uh, First, Annika Smethas is here. Hello, Annika. Hey, Tom, welcome back. Where have you been? Just had a little holiday and um, strangely spent quite a bit of it just riding my bike up steep hills. Sounds terrible. (laughs) (laughs) That's not how I spend my holidays, but... Yeah, it's been Whatever a weird makes one. You tick. Yeah, I'm actually doing my first cycling race on Saturday and it's around the south coast of New South Wales with these ridiculous mountains. So I'm kind of in training at the moment. Very, very painful training. Good luck. It sounds awful. Let's <laughs> get to the headlines. Prime Minister Scott Morrison has received his second jab of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine as new mystery cases of the virus linked to hotel quarantine in New South Wales and in Queensland derail those COVID-free streaks in those states. The Prime Minister's second jab comes as the government faces criticism for falling behind on the vaccine rollout. Scott Morrison is insisting we're on track for the October target of having everybody vaccinated. We remain on track for the first doses of uh, all of the vaccines for all of those who are seeking them um, to Australia. Well, by that, I mean the AstraZeneca and the Pfizer vaccines uh, to be uh, available to all those who want them in Australia by the end of October. But it's not really that simple, is it, Annika? We are actually falling behind on this early stage of the rollout and this October deadline is now for first doses rather than both doses. Yeah, last week, Brendan Murphy said about 125,000 people have been vaccinated and that is below the aim of what they wanted. They needed to get to 4 million people by the end of April to hit that October target. So as you say, it does seem to be pushing out now that you would get your first of those vaccines in October, which if you add about 12 weeks to that, it looks like you'd be getting your second dose maybe in early 2022 for those people right at the end. So look, we are falling behind. Some of that is because of local problems, but a lot of it's to do with the fact we can't get the vaccine here at the moment. Yeah, so within the next week, we're going to start producing it here, the AstraZeneca vaccine, so that will speed things up, and that's what the government's really banking on. As this is happening, we've got the news over the weekend of that Sydney security guard. Um, He'd actually had his first shot of the Pfizer jab and then worked at two Sydney quarantine hotels, and he tested positive over the weekend, which broke New South Wales' 55-day run of no community cases. Yeah, they say they're not too worried about that, but I'd hate to think that I would get the vaccine and then get COVID. In Queensland, authorities are waiting to see if any new cases present after a doctor treating COVID patients tested positive to that contagious UK strain of the virus. The doctor's believed to have caught the virus from a person who came into a Brisbane hospital from hotel quarantine. It's interesting, isn't it, seeing these cases emerge in Sydney and Brisbane, and it seems like when everything's going fine, no one's too worried about the vaccine timeline, but as soon as we get a few cases, we're like, hey, where's the vaccine up to? Isn't it meant to be, you know, going a lot faster than this? Yeah, somebody that's getting married in five days, I am freaking out all of a sudden over Ah. these cases. Usually wouldn't care at all, so (laughs) it surely depends on your circumstances, Tom. Right, so as I'm riding up those steep hills, you'll be getting married. Hopefully, fingers crossed. (laughs) Two very interesting polls have come out over the weekend. One, an actual election result, and one, an opinion poll. Both bad for the Liberal Party. 
Yeah, to the opinion poll first, um, political observers have been waiting to see if the recent sexual assault allegations have hurt the government, and it appears they have, Annika. Labor has overtaken the government in the latest news poll, leading the coalition 52 to 48. Yeah, the government's primary vote has fallen to its second lowest point since 2019, uh, falling to equal Labor at 39%. So that's almost as low as when the federal government was copying a lot of criticism for their handling of the bushfires. What do you make of that opinion, Paul Annika? Look, I think it's somewhat significant in that you never want to slip behind. There is a margin for error in these polls. And we also know, given the last election, that polling actually isn't that accurate as it used to be. Having said that, the government would be stupid to ignore this. I think One of the interesting things I took out of it, Tom, though, is preferred Prime Minister. Scott Morrison's still 56% compared to 30% for Anthony Albanese. Look, that is up for Elbow and down for Morrison, but he's still got a really big lead there. Is it just a guessing game attributing the reasons for this change in polling, or or can we say that the allegations against Christian Porter or the handling of the Brittany Higgins allegations is to blame for this change in polling? Look, I think it's hard to ignore that that's what it's about. These polls come out about every fortnight pending something else, but that's sort of the cycle we're on here and the latest poll takes in both of those cases. I think there is real anger. I'm noticing it speaking to people who are in non-political corners, people that usually don't talk about politics a whole great deal, are really angered by this. So I think that's definitely the case with this poll. Let's talk about the real election result. That was in WA over the weekend, which was a massive victory for Labor. It left the Liberals with only three seats in the state parliament. Yeah, that's some terrible results there. WA Premier Mark McGowan said yesterday the win was a vote of confidence think so, in his government and its achievements. People have seen with me and my government that we're very centrist, we're very middle of the road, uh, we're very progressive, uh, we're caring but we're responsible and um, there's nothing to fear. So Annika, I saw some commentary about this election saying that Mark McGowan is a Labor leader who can appeal to Liberal voters. So, So is there something special about him or does this all come down to WA's handling of COVID? I thought it was interesting there that he called himself both centrist and progressive. I would say that is part of his success, that he is considered very centrist. But I think just looking across Australia at the moment, you don't want to be in opposition, whatever that is for you. In Victoria, that is Liberal. Federally, that's Labor. Over there, it was Liberal on the weekend. They are just not popular. There's been big polls come out overnight for New South Wales saying the Labor leader there would almost lose her seat if an election was held. So it is just a national trend. When people are in times of fear or crisis, they tend to turn to their governments. They really want them to be re-elected and we turn against oppositions and that's something we're seeing everywhere. And London's Metropolitan Police are facing criticisms from citizens and government over their handling of protests in the wake of the death of Sarah Everard, who allegedly was killed at the hands of a serving officer. A gathering at a park in South London, close to where Miss Everard was last seen, saw police use heavy-handed tactics to break up the crowds and make arrests. Politicians, including the London Mayor and the Home Secretary, have raised questions over how police handled the gathering. Uh, Met Police Commissioner Dame Cressida Dick said officers policing the vigil on Clapham Common felt quite rightly that this was an unlawful gathering. I understand why so many people wanted to come and pay their respects and uh, kind of make a statement about this. Indeed, if it had been lawful, 
I'd have been there. I'd have been at a vigil. And thousands of people are expected to take to the streets in Australia today for the Women's March for Justice movement. There are more than 40 rallies registered across the country today, including in Canberra. They're calling for change in federal parliament, demanding that all politicians address and put an end to the issues of sexism, misogyny, dangerous workplace cultures and lack of equality in politics and the community at large. And Annika, there's been um, some interesting debate about whether some of our leaders, including Scott Morrison, would actually come down to the protest outside Parliament House today. Yeah, this kicked off yesterday on Insiders when the Deputy Prime Minister was asked whether he would pop out and see the protests. He said he was a little bit busy. Look, Scott Morrison had uh, a more nuanced approach. He said he's also quite busy, which is true, but he would be happy to meet with a delegation. And this is usually the way these things go. Um, Other politicians might join them, but the Prime Minister traditionally probably wouldn't come out for such a thing, but would happily meet with people. And that's something he's agreed to do today. All right. Well, we're going to jump out of the studio and Jan Fran and Katrina Blowers will be here to talk about these new online bullying laws and how they might affect the sex industry. who knows me will have absolutely heard me rant about how much I hate social media. Yes, I can attest to that. Yeah, I mean, I will I'll rant to anyone who listens basically. It's it's a it's a love-hate relationship, right? But these platforms can so easily become these havens of abuse and trolling and often there's just nothing you can do about it. And then there's that dark child sex abuse material, the live streaming of terror attacks and image-based abuse where an intimate image or video is shared online without your consent. Yeah, I think we've all realised by now that the internet can be a very dark and difficult place. And this is partly why the federal government has stepped in. It's the world's first anti-trolling laws and a cyber abuse scheme which gives our e-safety commissioner the power to block a website showing offensive vision like the Christchurch terror attack. Yeah, so today on The Briefing, the online safety bill announced by Communications Minister Paul Fletcher back in February. If there's serious abuse directed at an Australian adult and you're the victim of that, you can first go to the platform. If they do nothing, come to the eSafety Commissioner. She will have the power to make an order that that serious cyber abuse be taken down. Yeah, see, this is good stuff. And that makes me feel a lot better about being a person on the internet. So we're going to take a look at what this bill is, what it means for you, but also why some people in particular sex workers, have some serious and legitimate concerns about it. We're asking one person, based on our very limited classification guidelines, to decide what is and isn't explicit. So I could put something up that I think is okay, and then find out that according to this one person, it's not. That is sex worker Lucy B, who we're going to hear from in just a minute. But first, let's find out more about this legislation. Jared Bartle is Policy and Campaigns Director at the Eros Foundation. Jared, thanks for joining us. This bill is obviously drafted with the best of intentions, but who are the biggest winners and losers here? The online safety bill, um, as it's drafted, is primarily focused on online harms. And so if we're going to frame it as as winners and and losers, the bulk of the legislation is dealing with objectively harmful content. So 
Um, it's expanding the powers of the safety commissioner to deal with things like child exploitation material and abusive content to children. Um, it's also expanding the powers um, to deal with cyber abuse targeting adults with uh, women being kind of disproportionately impacted by cyber abuse online, as well as expanding powers to deal with non-consensual sharing of intimate images, sometimes called revenge porn. All of that is great under the bill in terms of it's dealing with emerging online harms that, mm. that otherwise wouldn't be dealt with. Unfortunately, as the bill is currently drafted, it also has an entire section which deals with taking down material depicting consensual sex between adults. And this is where the, the major concerns are coming up amongst sex workers, artists and other people who who may be posting content that is sexually explicit online. So under the current Broadcasting Services Act, pornography and sexually explicit imagery is currently banned on the Australian internet. When I say that, everyone thinks that that's completely ridiculous, um, and it is, but um, under the current laws, anything hosted on Australian servers can't be sexually explicit. So, Which is ridiculous because there are many things that are hosted on Australian servers, I would imagine, that are explicit, not that I have looked and or spent time <laughs> researching. But, like, porn is out there. Let's let's be real. Porn is out there, yeah. Um, and, and the way porn producers and performers and sex workers have kind of dealt with the weird current laws that we have is to host things in overseas servers and also take advantage of the fact that social media was never really viewed as part of these laws. But that's all going to change if this bill passes because it allows for penalisation of social media sites which which host this sexually explicit content. So the, the really unfortunate thing is that the bill is attempting to modernise online safety regulation, uh, but they've copied and pasted, at least in relation to adult content, some of the most outdated parts of the, the existing law. What about for the everyday person? Already we're seeing people getting to hot water for posting breastfeeding pics on Instagram. Could this have more unintended consequences in that space? Absolutely. Um, the sexually explicit imagery that, that's subject to a takedown notice here isn't limited to commercial pornography. So it's, it's any imagery depicting consensual uh, adults. And our biggest concern is that it penalises social media websites for hosting the content. And we've seen this quite recently with Facebook and the, the news bargaining code. Whenever social media sites are faced with a financial penalty or some sort of uh, financial hit from any part of, of regulation, they're likely to do these content purges. And that's our biggest concern, that, that Twitter and all these other websites are going to say, well, anything vaguely sexually explicit is now prohibited on this website because we don't want to be hit with a financial penalty. And so that's going to have an impact for the sexual expression of, of all Australians, not just sex workers and porn producers. God, that's not going to free the nipple at all. That's going to trap the nipple no. even further. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And the, the, we, we know, as you say, that these, these kind of algorithmic ways of taking down content just encompass so many different things that, that you wouldn't expect. That was Jared Bartell. He's from the Eros Foundation. Let's go back to Lucy B. She's the sex worker that we heard from a little earlier in the show. Lucy, what are your biggest worries here? For me, it's 
concerning that the online safety bill offers such broad scope of, of power to one person, um, in this case, likely the e-safety commissioner who hasn't been elected, they can sort of make decisions about what they think is appropriate or what is harmful content. Um, and the bill itself doesn't really make any distinction about the difference between harmful content and uh, sexual content. And that means that they could kind of target a lot of what I do online um, wherever I do it. And a lot of different websites would probably feel forced to comply because they'll face fines if they don't. Mm. When Foster sort of hit um, and then impacted sex workers globally, even though it was a US piece of legislation, a lot of websites just culled different parts of their spaces. So that started with sort of really basic stuff such as where sex workers might advertise um, and went on to content creation spaces. You saw subreddits getting deleted um, and then went so far as to go towards like dating websites for like particular niche fetishes. I think you saw a furry dating website disappear. So it often starts with sex workers and then flows on to impact the rest of the community. Mm. Um, I do a lot of online sex work now, um, especially because of COVID. That's how I effectively support my family. It's something that I've had to do um, for safety purposes. And that includes OnlyFans, um, other content creation websites. And I try and be quite diligent about what I'm posting and where I try and keep things that are, I guess, the spiciest behind a paywall. Um, and that's that's because of how I feel. I don't necessarily want people stumbling on anything too exciting. Um, and that's a business decision, but also because, you know, I care um, about who's online and who might see what. So given, Lucy, most of your sort of, as you say, spiciest stuff is behind a paywall, what are your concerns with how this bill will affect your business? I probably don't have any, um, I guess, wildly explicit stuff by choice these days out there, but I do have a lot of stuff from the past um, that's lurking around the internet that um, has been shared sometimes in places that I don't know, um, that could get taken down and I could be blamed for that, which is alarming and concerning. Um, If you're a sex worker, often ads and stuff like that are are picked up and scraped by other places. But beyond that, it also means that, you know, things like BDSM and, and fetish content, that could disappear in an instant. I guess what we're dealing with is we're asking one person based on our very limited classification guidelines to decide what is and isn't explicit. So I could put something up that I think is okay and then find out that according to this one person, it's not. We're sort of at the mercy of one person's potential bias and we're being expected to take their word that this won't be misused. And well, that we're well not do you t- take their word? Because the eSafety Commissioner has come out and said that she won't use these powers to shut down sex worker businesses, that the majority um, of this bill is really targeted at child sex abuse material. I mean, are, are you reassured by that at all? I'm not. <laughs> mm. um, and given sort of historically what happens to sex workers online, I don't think you would find many of us who would mm. take those assurances seriously. There was seven days between when submissions were finally sort of the the end of when submissions were called for and then seven days sort of for them to consult 
um, and look at those submissions. And countless numbers of us made these submissions, worked quite hard on them. And to be told that it only took seven days for over 370 submissions to be actually thoughtfully considered was a little bit insulting. And in my submission, I I made very clear that there are aspects of this bill that I feel very strongly about, Um, especially anything to do with child abuse material and anything to do with harassment online. It's sort of like, well, we want to do this. We want you to give us this power to do this, but we can't tell you how we're going to do it. We're just going to sort of figure it out after the fact. I think that sets a really dangerous precedent. That was Lucy B. She is a sex worker from Brisbane. It seems that this stuff is very complicated. I don't think you can have a sledgehammer approach to online legislation because there are so many facets of the internet. I don't envy the people trying to draft this law and certainly the people who are at the receiving end of it. And making laws about things that haven't even possibly been invented yet. Yeah, exactly. Content channels we don't even know about right now. But look, anything that can crack down on the trolls has ultimately got to be a good thing and to keep us feeling safe when we're putting so much of our lives online. Yeah, I just wonder if there's a way to do it that doesn't affect people and their livelihoods. Listener.